0: Thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would give us attentive minds and uh, responsive hearts. And we pray that uh, you'd free us from things which would otherwise distract us. We pray for our children as well that they would be uh, learning uh, your scriptures uh, truly and properly uh, in the Sunday school. That uh, you would be uh, embedding the seed of the gospel in their lives. That they would grow to the uh, people who love, serve and trust you. We pray that for ourselves as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the world, every society and culture has its expectations about how people will conduct themselves in a variety of different relationships. Uh, It's especially so when it comes to the uh, key relationships of marriage, family life, and work life. Uh, Sometimes these expectations in a culture are really good. They help uh, help think relationships to function uh, well and society to function well, but sometimes they can be not so good Um, especially uh, when uh, they uh, lead to unhelpful and ungodly practices that become embedded in a culture over a a long period of time. Uh, In our Australian society, we uh, debate issues about relationships. We debate uh, the issues in relation to the differences between men and women and how we ought to be conducting ourselves in our marriages. Uh, There's always discussion about how children and parents should be relating to each other, and uh, there's the ongoing issue that we're working at all of the time in terms of resolving conflicts and competing interests uh, between employers and employees in the workplace. Um, We live in a society where we do discuss these issues, and we live in a society where some practices have become embedded that are not helpful. And some practices uh, that are helpful. Uh, in the ancient world, the most, influenti- the most influential Western cultures were, of course, the Greeks and the Romans, and uh, they believed that the family unit was the foundational bedrock unit for the well-being of a society and the nation. I think they might have been onto something there, don't you? I think that might actually be uh, be true. And so the the Greeks and the Romans established uh, what came to be known as household codes of conduct. Um, uh, sometimes these were actually written down. Uh, codes of conduct as to how you would conduct yourself in uh, these key relationships. And some these they addressed issues such as how should a husband and a wife relate to one another, Uh, the responsibilities of children towards their parents, and in a culture which was a uh, culture where they had slavery, uh, it addressed issues uh, uh, in respect to how should the, the slave in the household be relating to the master in the household. Uh, these were all important issues, and there were codes of conduct that were established uh, by the Greeks and the Romans. But the, the, but the, the early Christians faced uh, a different issue. Their issue was, how does being a Christian uh, affect the way that I conduct myself in my relationships? Husband and wife, parents and children, slaves and masters... And uh, that's an issue for us as well, isn't it? Because we are faced with these relational matters every day of our lives. Uh, In Colossians chapter 3, Paul, in writing to the Colossian Christians, addresses these issues. And particularly the issue of what difference does it make when you've got Christ in your life? And as we're going to look at this passage... Um, Paul, Peter said I'd be preaching on uh, verse 17 through to chapter 4, verse 1 today. I, I can't. Um, well, I could, but we'd be just so skimming the surface. I think we need to spend two or three weeks uh, dealing with uh, this particular passage. And so what, that's what we're going to be doing, because when we look at the passage, which we're going to notice that there, is a, there, there are areas in which our Australian culture clashes... Uh, with, with God's way and uh, indeed it was true in the ancient world that uh, what Paul says in this passage clashed with the codes of conduct that uh, were prevalent uh, in the world in which the Colossians lived and it's, for us it's perhaps no more so than the very first issue and the issue which we're going to look at today and that is the relationship between husbands and wives. Now, let's have a look at that. Uh, if you open up your Bibles at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, I'm going to read uh, the first two verses uh, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, if there's... One verse in the Bible that kind of leaps off the page and smacks you across the face. It's got to be verse 18, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, as the theologians say, there's been a lot of ink spilt over that verse. You can understand why, can't you? I mean, what Paul is saying here is that Paul is commanding wives to be submissive to their husbands. Now, some people absolutely love this verse. Some people absolutely hate this verse. In both cases, I think neither of them actually understand this verse. Uh, And that's the reason why they have such extreme reactions to it. But we need to understand it. How, therefore, should we understand it? Well, what I want us to do is I want us to consider something of what the Bible teaches elsewhere on uh, the issue of the marriage relationship and in order to do that we need to go back to the very beginning we need to go back to Genesis so I wonder if you might um, uh, come with me in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 Um, Genesis 1 through to 3 is the foundational teaching on humanity and human relations we could spend an entire Series on those three chapters. We're just going to skim the surface today. But I want to um, uh, point out that there are four uh, key truths that we learn about in Genesis 1 to 3 that are important truths about men and women. Uh, The first one is that men and women are created equal. This is the very important point to make and you see it in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, where uh, uh, the author t- of Genesis writes, uh, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, uh, when it talks there about um, man, it's referring to mankind. Uh, some might say Humankind and uh, I understand why, Um, and what it's saying here is that human beings that we are created in God's image, that we are the image bearers of God. It's saying that uh, we are the of all of the creatures, that we are the ones that reflect and display God's glory, that we are the ones who are created to live in relationship with God, uh, that we are in fact the, the summit, we are the pinnacle of of all of God's creation. Uh, We're very special. And uh, what it's saying there is that we are made both male and female and therefore we are of equal value in God's sight. It's a very important truth. Uh, It may seem self-evident, but it's an important truth to state that men and women are equal in the sight of God. There's no question about that. The second truth is that men and women are also different. Now, we've obviously got different bodies, but we don't just have different bodies. We also have different roles in that relationship. And so in the more detailed account of Adam and Eve in chapter 2, in verse 18, it states this. Uh, It says, The Lord God, having created Adam, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, And it goes on to say that uh, after God took the rib out of Adam's body in verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, this is now Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There is that uh, great unity of the two in marriage. But when you put the two key truths together, we see that there is both uh, equality and that there is an order. In the relationship, uh, an ordering where it is Eve's role to support her husband, it is her role to be his helper. Now, the third truth is the entry of sin into the world. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, who did Satan tempt? He tempted Eve. When Satan tempted Eve, there was a reversal of the order in creation. The order in creation is that God is the ruler, with man supported by his wife under God's rule, and Satan at the very bottom of the pile. But in Genesis chapter 3, that order in relationship is tipped upside down, so that Satan becomes the ruler. He's the leader. And he leads the, the, the woman Eve uh, into sin, and she leads her husband into sin, and God is down at the bottom of the pile. And so, what's happened in terms of Eve's relationship with Adam is that she has inverted that relationship. Instead of being his helper, she has become his leader. And Adam has allowed that to happen, for he failed to take the lead and to say, no, we're going to obey God. That's why Adam is held responsible for uh, sin entering into the world. And fourthly, one of the outcomes of this is what we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. You know when uh, God uh, says what the punishments will be for the various uh, parties, the, the punishment for Satan, the punishment for the man, the punishment for the woman... And uh, part of the woman's punishment is the difficulties that she will have in childbearing. But uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, she it also says that God says to her that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. One of the ways of understanding that is that uh, uh, in the fallen world, that the woman's desire will be... To lead the relationship but that the reality will be that the husband will rule over her in a wrongful manner and uh, that indeed has often been the experience of marriage in the fallen world there is an ugly side to marriage and it's that ugly side which is uh, is what prompts people to react so strongly against what Paul says here when he commands women to submit to their husbands. I mean the reason for that's obvious. Because throughout history we have seen the fulfilment of Genesis chapter three, verse sixteen, where instead of being the harmonious, um, complementary relationship that God intended, that marriage has in fact become a battleground, uh, or it's become a relationship of oppression and and abuse. Uh, from both sides, both physical uh, and emotional abuse in the relationship. Now that's sin. That's the outcome of sin. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, has dealt with sin. He's paid the penalty for sin. And in Colossians, what we've seen is that if we are in Christ, then we are now a new creation, and uh, that, uh, that, that, that that we are to put to death the old sinful nature, and we are to put on, we are to clothe ourselves with Christ, and with Christ's character. So that by dealing with sin by His death on the cross, that uh, what that means is that Jesus has set right the order relationship in creation so that God is the, our ruler and so that the the husband does take the responsibility to lead his wife and that the wife seeks to help her husband uh, in that. But as the husband leads the wife, he doesn't do so as a boss, he doesn't do so as a tyrant, it's a problem, isn't it? Because a lot of what people have seen, you know, in other relationships, is the you know old image of the father who rules everything, and it's uh, not a particularly attractive image, and it's a wrong image. You see, it's not about his rights; it's about her well-being. Now, in the first century, this was radical teaching. You see, the the Greek and the Roman um, Household Codes were very strong on the idea that uh, wives should obey their husbands. They were strong on the idea that children should obey their parents. They were strong on the idea that slaves should obey their masters. But they didn't have a whole lot to say about husbands loving their wives, about parents treating their kids in a way that's fair and about masters actually looking after their slaves and providing well for them. Uh, where they did uh, include those that reciprocal part of the relationship, it was for the benefit of the stronger party. So for example, uh, when uh, the Greek philosophers talked about the value of, uh, talked about the, the master actually providing well for his slave, It wasn't for the intrinsic benefit and value of the slave. It was so that the slave would work harder uh, for the master. Um, And so, what Paul's teaching here is actually quite radical, even in the first century. And here, uh, he speaks to men, doesn't he? And he says, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. There's a similar passage to this which is in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where uh, Paul says that the wives should submit to a husband and he spends about 40 words, 40, around 40 words explaining the command to the, to the wives and then he spends 120 plus words giving instructions to the husbands as to how they should love their wives. And he says, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He died for the church. He put his own interests behind the interests of us. And that is how the husband is to love his wife. And the wife must allow her husband to lead her. Uh, That's what it means to submit. Uh, Some people um, try to water this down by saying that the word submit doesn't really mean submit. You see it particularly in the way that they handle the Ephesians 5 passage where Paul says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, let me show you how that works out. Wife, submit to your husband's um, children obey your parents, slaves uh, obey your masters, and the reciprocal nature of those relationships. So some people say, "Well, submit doesn't really mean submit um, because you're supposed to. Everyone's supposed to submit to everyone else. Uh, that's uh, and uh, in, in fact, it just means be nice to them or be compassionate or be understanding of them. But that's not the word that Paul uses. The word he uses is submit. If you wanted to say be nice to them, be understanding of them, etc., you could have used the words that uh, translate as those words. The word submit uh, refers to a relationship uh, which involves at least two parties where one party has a, uh, has a rightful authority and a rightful responsibility to lead in that relationship. Uh, that's what the word submit means. And so here uh, Paul says that the, the wife is to submit to the husband, which means to allow him to take the lead. Now, how does this work out in practice? Well, I don't think it's a matter of listing all of the kinds of decisions that could be made. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude. It's, a, it's an attitude of love and respect. Uh, It's an attitude of the the wife having a respect for her husband and and allowing the husband to lead. It's an attitude of the husband wanting to serve his wife and to love her and to do what's right for her. And in any relationship, it's going to play out differently uh, according to who the people are, Uh, because in the vast majority of decisions, I know in our own household, that uh, the person who makes a decision is the person who's just best equipped to make that decision. <laughs> uh, and you know when the decisions involve both of us, we work together to try to resolve those, uh, to make those decisions. But in the end, uh, it, it is the husband who is to take the lead, and the wife needs to allow him to do so, and to respect that. Sometimes, of course, there'll be the, the very clear situation where after uh, you know, rightful uh, discussion that the husband and wife cannot find agreement um, on a particular issue. And in that event where you can't come to an agreement, somebody needs to have the authority to make the decision, don't they? <laughs> That's true in a lot of relationships. And because the options are that you just keep on being at loggerheads with one another or you just make zero decision at all, or in the worst case scenario, over time, you just draw apart from one another. Somebody has to make the decision and that somebody should be the husband. But how should he make that decision? He should do so in the manner which he believes to be best for the well-being of his wife and his children. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. Uh, There's a a Christian couple that I know pretty well who have faced this problem just recently. They've been in a situation whereby they they had to make a decision about uh, making a change in their lives that was going to radically impact on them as a family. And after much discussion, they disagreed about what to do. Uh, The wife is a very, very godly woman. Um, And uh, in many ways, she's a model Christian lady. And for reasons which I I can well understand, and you would if you knew the reasons, for for good reasons, uh, she did not want to make the change which was being proposed. But the husband believed that spiritually and personally it was in her best interest uh, for that change to be made. And he is the one who has to present her to Christ. And so it was also in the best interest of the children for that change to be made was his belief. So what do you do in that situation? Because in the end, somebody has to submit to someone, don't they? (laughs) Uh, And the easiest thing for him to have done, the path of least resistance, would have been for him to have said, well, fine. I mean, I think it's better if we make this change. You don't. doesn't matter. We won't bother. But he didn't do that. Instead, he took the lead. And for over 12 months, and I observed this, uh, and I spoke with him about it. Over 12 months, he gently helped his wife to to overcome the issues that had been troubling her about this decision. He listened to her. He understood her concerns and he worked at trying to find some solutions to those concerns. And so, as Paul says in verse 19, he was not harsh with his wife. He was loving, and he he didn't just say to her, look, I don't care what you think. We're going to do what I'm saying because I'm the leader. That would be sin. No, he was loving. But, and this is the point I want to make, he led. He led, and that was a difficult path to take. That was the difficult path, but it was the right path, and she, as a godly woman, Uh, came uh, to the view that although it was difficult for her, that she knew that her husband was not acting out of self-interest, but out of love and out of his view of what was best for the family, and uh, she has accepted his leadership in this matter. She's allowed him to lead, and uh, that's evidence of the importance that they place on the scriptural teaching in relation to the marriage Relationship, And it's, I believe it's a good example of how this passage would work out in practice in that very, very obvious situation where in a difficult issue that the couple could not come to an agreement. Most matters don't come to that. And most matters aren't as important. Um, but the important issue there is for the husband to lovingly lead and for the wife to accept his leadership. Now, by the way, do you think that it is always right for the woman to submit to the husband? Are there situations where a godly Christian woman may legitimately decide to not submit to what her husband wants? There are, aren't they? There are. What would be an, an example of that? Do you think? What would be a situation? Yeah, that's right. See, see it's interesting in uh, in verse eighteen that the woman, the wife, is to submit to the husband uh, as is fitting in the Lord. And I think there's two ways you can interpret as is fitting in the Lord, and they're both legitimate. Uh, one is to say that the general principle of um, submission is what is fitting in the Lord. Uh, the other way of understanding it is that it's a condition on her submission, that she is to submit uh, in, in ways that do please the Lord. So if, that if a husband is to be wanting to uh, lead his wife into sin or lead his wife away from God or away from fellowship with God's people, then she needs to put the commands of God first. And she needs to, uh, she needs to hold her ground and, uh, and obey God rather than obey the husband. Because it's our obedience to God is the prior relationship. Uh, that takes great faith and it takes courage to do. Uh, but in the end... It's actually the best way of serving the husband as well. To stand firm in her obedience uh, irrespective of the pressure that might be placed upon her. God will honour that. So there's a few interesting issues to work through from this passage. Um, But what we see here is that the order of relationship in marriage, it's not about a man selfishly imposing his will on his wife. It's about a man and a woman created equal in God's sight, but who have differing roles in the relationship. And the, the problem that we have is that we often confuse someone's value with the role that they have. That's, that permeates through the whole of our society. We value people according to their role rather than according to the fact that they've been created in the image of God. But value and role are not the same thing. Um, Let me show you a really clear example that uh, proves that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment, if you wouldn't mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is dealing with uh, some issues that were going on in the Corinthian church, uh, which uh, are specific to the Corinthian church, and he's wanting to talk about how people are relating to one another in the context of their church gatherings. Uh, There's a lot that we could expand on from 1 Corinthians 11, but I just want to Draw your attention to uh, just one key uh, verse in there, and it's verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. He says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Do we have any problems with that? No problems with that one, do we? The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the. What does it say? Is the man? Well, that's the, that's the one we're talking about, isn't it? All right. But I want to refer you to what he says next, where he says that the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Now we know from the, the teaching of Scripture that uh, Christ is God, that uh, we know that there is one God, three persons. Uh, there is God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. The mathematics doesn't add up, but we're talking about God here, folks. (laughs) We're talking about God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, but yet they are different. Equal, but different. And here within the Trinity, we see that there is an ordering of relationship. Uh, within God Himself. So that the the Holy Spirit is sent by the Son. Right? And the Holy Spirit gives glory to the Son. Uh, the Son has been sent by the Father. The, but, and the, the Son gives glory to the Father. The Son obeys the Father. You see that there's within the Trinity there is an there is a quality because father son and holy spirit they're all equally god all equally god but yet there is leadership and there is submission within the loving relationships of the trinity so that the fact that jesus submits to the father does that make him any less god does that make him any less valuable no. Function and value, they're not the same thing. And, and that is important in many relationships, as we'll see next week when we look at parents and children. Are children any less valuable than their parents? No. Do they have equal authority in the relationship? Come on. No. No. No, there is, a, uh, uh, there, there is a, an orderliness in the relationship. And you see that uh, not just in family life, you see that in work life as well, uh, where some are managers and some are not managers, and so on. And it's that order in relationship which, when practiced lovingly, actually generates healthy, stable and functioning relationships. It's very different to what our culture sometimes teaches. Indeed, you know, we, we can even be tempted, we take a verse like this, we can be tempted to study it extra, extra hard, uh, not because we're trying to work out how can, can we understand this so that we can live according to it, but we're trying to find loopholes. People are studying this passage with great effort to see if they can find a loophole. One of the loopholes that people have um, thought about in relation to this and other passages where uh, the Bible teaches the same thing is that they say that uh, what Paul is doing here is that he's just reflecting his first century culture. Have you heard that one before? Certainly there's a lot of stuff in Paul's writing that's very cultural and we need to try to understand the culture so we can get the right application for us here today. But they say that in relation to this that Paul is just reflecting his culture. I've already shown that his culture didn't have the complementary, uh, uh, the the complementarian view that he's espousing here. But more than that, uh, in other passages where Paul teaches the same sort of thing. He doesn't root his argument in culture. He doesn't say, uh, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and following, I think it is, uh, where he teaches the same relationship between men and and women, he doesn't say that you should practise your relationships this way because this is what our culture says. No, rather what he does is he roots the argument in creation itself. He says it was Adam created first, then it's Eve. So Paul himself roots the argument in creation. And uh, friends, if it stems from creation, then it flows through to the new creation. It flows through to those of us who have been forgiven and have been changed by the gospel, uh, where the created order of relationships is set right again. Um, in verse 17 of Colossians 3, passage which uh, Peter preached on last week, we saw this. Uh, we saw that uh, Paul says in verse 17... "...that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." And he spells out, this is what I mean, in terms of your husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, masters. And you see how everything through that section is all about the Lord. So verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord." Um, Verse 20, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Um, Verse 22, uh, slaves are to obey their masters in everything but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Since we are clothed with Christ... Paul says, this is how you should treat one another in the Lord. And when you think about it, it's a lot like the way that God has treated us. Jesus is our Lord, which means that he is our master. We obey Jesus. We submit to him. But he's also our saviour, the one who's loved us so much that he died for us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for uh, your good, uh, created order in relations. We know, Lord God, that uh, we live in a world that is fallen, where uh, people do, do not obey your word, and that we are influenced by that culture. We pray, Father God, that as redeemed people, as part of the new creation, that uh, you would help us to work through our relationships in a way that honours and pleases you. Help those of us who are husbands to uh, to take on the, the uh, responsibility to lead our wives and our children uh, in, in ways of godliness, uh, to not uh, slacken off on our responsibilities in that regard. We pray for the wives amongst us that you would Uh, help them to be supportive of their husbands, make it easier for their husbands to lead in a way that is godly. We pray that in our families and in our marriages that uh, Christ would be honoured and others would see that, indeed that it would be attractive for some to turn to the Saviour themselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.